recap of what do I want to do is I want to go to the cafe and write. And it brought order to my days, but also like happiness and fulfillment. And so it was very helpful to realize that the importance of writing to my life wasn't just, or writing fiction wasn't just this mercenary career-based pursuit. Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm Pamela Hensley, and on the show today, Scotiabank Giller Prize-winning novelist Sean Michaels talks about writing a literary novel with a kung fu murder scene, integrity in art, and how he fears the benign version of artificial intelligence as much as any other. In 2003, while still a student, Sean created an MP3 blog called Said the Gramophone, hoping it might get him free music. Years later, it was rated by Time magazine as one of the top 25 blogs in the world and became his calling card for music journalism gigs. But his heart was always in the novel. After spending years on one that was never published, he started over with us conductors and won the biggest literary prize in Canada. He claimed it was lucky and went on to write a novel about luck, the wagers, while continuing to write articles for The Guardian and The Globe and Mail, and occasionally Rolling Stone. His latest novel, Do You Remember Being Born, was published this fall by Penguin Random House. He joins me in the studio. Hello, Sean Michaels. Hi. You emigrated from Scotland when you were five and grew up in Ottawa. Would you describe your childhood as conventional? I I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, that sound, feels really boring, but the alternative is to, to describe it as unconventional, which I don't think it really was, no. Well, what were you like? Were you, were you shy? Were you, did no, you like No, I was a pretty outgoing and happy and Joe, I was a bit of a clown. And I don't know, I don't think I have a very good perspective of what I was really like at school because my experience of being a student was that I got into trouble. Not like I didn't really get into trouble. I was a very good kid. But I got into trouble with teachers for, you know, disrupting the class a little bit. And I felt at times like an outcast. At other times I felt part of the group. But I know that I was um, really at the top of my classes kind of in retrospect. And I remember a moment in sixth grade where I received uh, an like an award at the end of the year for like the, the English prize or something like that, and I didn't know what that meant. Like mm-hmm. the fact that I spoke English, <laughs> like I didn't understand what English and they meant kind of English literature, um, but I wasn't even aware that I was particularly gifted at that. So, but but then again, my teacher gave me a copy of a, a Tolkien encyclopedia. That was the award, and that was very much in my wheelhouse. So, I mean, she knew me, and so clearly she had kind of been able to see what I was about. Mm-hmm. But I think that actually colored. Yeah, colored some of how going forward I thought of my strengths. It was like someone else's, someone, recognized <laughs> someone recognizing it them. But I, all through school, I studied the sciences. I was really a math, science, and arts kind of kid. I almost went to high school for theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did. A, I mean, I yeah, that was school. And then at home, things were good. I had really supportive, arts loving parents. My dad was a sort of scientist. My mom worked for government and in. Culture. Ottawa, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and what was it like in the house? Did you have lots of books or music? Or Yeah, there are books everywhere. I would be dragged around. I have lots of memories of going to like used book sales in, at schools, like strange schools where you pay by the 
cardboard box of books and we'd spend it felt like hours just waiting for my parents to be finished and so the house has books in every room and then they kept all the books from my childhood for instance so they're still there and um, they love music my dad in particular classical music and music from around the world so there were lots of sounds and lots of words and you know every summer we'd go for maybe two weeks to a cottage my grandparents had bought a cottage outside Toronto before I was born, and we would go, and I would just bring a stack of, we'd all bring a stack of, you know, 15 hardcover books from the library and just spend, spend two reading. weeks reading them and dipping into the lake. That sounds kind of nice. Yeah, it wasn't bad. <laughs> You're yeah. an only child? I have a sister. Okay. Yeah, a little sister. And when did you become interested in music yourself? Not until, um, like, later than a lot of people. I was not really a music, I was musically kind of aware in starting in my teens. I remember for my bar mitzvah, I got a bunch of HMV gift certificates and I bought things like the Cool Running soundtrack and a Weird Al CD and probably a Beatles anthology set. So nothing like particularly awake to possibilities. And I didn't have an older sibling or even like an older cousin mm. or, or a friend with an older sibling who would really pass me things. So it was really towards the end of high school, I started to be aware of or started to discover interesting or music outside of the mainstream, outside of the like immediate radio, pop radio mainstream. And that's where my imagination was really caught. And then the internet really was the rocket fuel that let me fall in love with music because it helped me. I, I saw things on Much Music or on, uh, yeah, mostly on Much Music or something would be recommended by a friend. And then I would literally go, I remember in the very late 90s, going to the Amazon website just to see what the algorithm there thought. If you like this, you will like that. Not buying anything from the website, but and then using file sharing services to just fill my hard drive and fill my brain up. So you moved to Montreal mm-hmm. uh, to study at McGill. Mm-hmm. And uh, what did you study? What were your ambitions at the time? I really was, I did not, I know, you know what, I had ambitions to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer. But so school, I felt, was really a time for learning what I wanted to fill my brain with. And so I did a double major in humanistic studies, which was just like this interdisciplinary program at McGill. I literally, an exam, a final exam question was, what does it mean to be human? Uh, you know, cite your sources. <laughs> uh, I remember sitting at the exam table and being like, hmm, well, the easiest uh, essay to write is that what it means to be human is to be miserable. Like, is the misery, it's like the misery track seems like an easy essay to write. So I think that's what I wrote. It sounds like a question that will come back and haunt you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, so I did a double major with humanistic studies and an English degree, but my English degree was in cultural studies, not in literature. Mm. So you didn't actually study creative writing? No, no, no. no. I mean, you couldn't at McGill. I took the one. There was one workshop with Claire Rothman, Claire Holden Rothman, I think, Mm -hmm. um, that I took. And I met some, a couple of writers who I still know now. Anna Leventhal was in that class. And, um, but that was it at McGill. And I wasn't, I didn't think to do that um, coming out of high school. Mm -hmm. So while you were still at university... It was 2003, you started Set the Gramophone, Mm -hmm. an early music blog that by 2011 had been rated one of the top 25 blogs in the world by Time magazine, which is pretty impressive. Why did you start Set the Gramophone? 
So in towards the end of high school, I started with some friends just making. I was always a kid who liked to have a project and have a thing to work on, and so with some friends we started a website um, called TangMonkey.com, that was uh, an online magazine, and would just allow us to write or draw or share whatever we might be interested in, and. So there was sections about comics and sections about horror movies and sections where people just rant and write editorials and there were short stories and all kinds of things. And I decided I would review music. And honest, honestly, I really think quite like candidly, the reason I did it was to hope to begin to get free music. Um, <laughs> That's a good reason. It was so expensive. <laughs> You're a student. As a student, it was, gen you know, CDs were really not... They're quite expensive. They're twice as much money as, as you know, as digital music is now. And this is like 20 years later. Right. So it really was expensive. And so I started writing reviews on this for this magazine. And they were not good. Like, I didn't have a gift for it. I didn't, wasn't particularly experienced or hadn't, re like, grown up reading. I wasn't some almost famous, like, precocious kid growing up reading Rolling Stone. But I started writing those reviews and wrote hundreds of them and gradually did start getting music sent for free mm -hmm. and tickets to shows. And then at a certain point, I got uncomfortable with um, or like bored of writing the same kind of long format review of an album. So I started a music blog. And uh, initially, it was just like random thoughts about music. But I found that really kind of narcissistic and aimless. So... At some point in late 2003, I decided to start writing about songs and sharing the songs as MP3s that anyone could download, which at that time was very unusual. And off I went. Hmm. So you weren't thinking about music journalism specifically? No, I, I never gave it a second thought. And in fact, you know, as you, as, as you may, may be leading me, like music journalism became my first professional writing jobs and like my first engagement with you know publishing was through music journalism and it was really surprising because it's really like a, a, a line of work I, I backed into right. while I always you know the thing I wanted to do was to be J.R. Tolkien I wanted to write a fantasy novel and and that's what I was always kind of aspiring to when I was younger. Just to stay on, said the gramophone, a little bit longer, you posted the MP3 files, mm -hmm. and then you wrote a short post, and it was between 75 and 100 words or so. And Sometimes then... much longer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But you basically were explaining what the song meant to you and why you thought it was good. And I, I wondered, is that, is it, was that the style from the start, or did it evolve to that? It evolved. Almost, I would say, it evolved from that. What I found. Uh, initially, I was just recommending songs and trying to explain why you should listen to them. But as time went on, I mean, I really think that music blogs like mine pioneered a certain kind of music journalism. For years, I mean, since the dawn of recorded music, when you wrote about music, it had to be these, like the primary function of the critic was to describe the music to the listener and then to kind of comment on it, whether it's like a kind of buying guide style music criticism where you're just recommending should you buy it or not, or whether you're kind of delving deep into some deeper aspect of it. 
But with Set the Gramophone and blogs like that, you know, anyone could just press play and hear the music. And it was no longer really a responsibility I had to say, you know, there's really folksy mandolins and a minor key and a guy with a nasal voice. Like, that, that was self-evident. And so it kind of liberated me to write differently. And so in some cases, that was to write really about my private experience of, you know, how I discovered something or the memories it evoked. But I gradually got more and more kind of abstract. I like to think sometimes that said the gramophone we were trying to, I, <laughs> this is ridiculous, but it, it was like, if this song was, was lying down in its bed to go to sleep, you know, what is the dream of this song? It was almost like a metaphor for the song that I was hearing, trying to find an expressive poetic language to communicate my experience of the song. And so sometimes they became short stories and kind of prose poems and all kinds of Sounds like you're getting more and more weird creative. stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I said the gramophone, I think, really got a reputation for being a bit on the like fanciful and weird side. But it also always felt like those who really loved it understood me and were seeing me and the other writers there and felt like really kind of ideal readers in a lot of ways. Because if they didn't care about if they didn't see things the same way, they wouldn't read. Like, they, they wouldn't, why, back, they wouldn't right? keep coming. Yeah. yeah. But after you graduated, you moved back to Scotland for mm -hmm. a few years, right? What, and you worked as a legal clerk. What were you planning? Were you planning to be a lawyer? Oh, no, 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 no. No, uh, no. I wanted to be a writer. I graduated from school. I wanted to work on a book. And um, I have European citizenship. So I went backpacking with my best friend Julian all through Europe, trying to decide where we liked best and where to settle. He wanted to write too. And we decided on Edinburgh. And That's I moved nice there. <laughs> and then I had to pay rent. And so I, I, I like to tell students now, I... I tried to find a job that w would, uh, that when I came home at the end of the, the day, I wouldn't be tired mentally and I wouldn't be tired physically uh, and that paid as much as possible. And so, so that you was know, a good choice. being yeah. a secretary is works well. Being a, like a legal secretary does a lot of typing. Ty is a typist takes from the lawyers would dictate into their dictaphones and I would type up letters. And so that was perfect. I was a very fast typist. And you don't have to think when you're just typing someone else's letter. And legal secretaries are paid twice as much as other kind of receptionists. So that's why I did it. That was the appeal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mercenary. Meanwhile, said so the gramophone is still going on. Yeah. And, but you were still not looking at it as a springboard to anything else. Well, springboard, no. But it had already by that time, I think, or in those years, certainly things started to change in that said the gramophone became really very well known for a while and opportunity first of all it became a calling card that I could pitch pieces or could try to start pitching to quote unquote real magazines or real online magazines and I think it's around that time that I wrote for the first time for places like the National Post and maybe Maisonneuve and but you came back to Canada. You were and then I came okay, back so to you were Canada. In, right, you're in Edinburgh. Yeah, in Scotland, freelance. I mean, working by day at the law firm, and then coming home and working on fiction, and then finding time every day to also do music writing. And yeah, I got. I was. I saw. I remember seeing in the comments of said the gramophone. A comment was left by an editor at the Believer magazine, which to me was like a really revered magazine. And I wrote to him and great excitement and he said oh you should like 
if you're ever interested in doing an interview for us or something. And I did. I wrote two interviews for them. And those really felt like my first time in the big leagues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then once you were back in Canada, is that when you heard from The Guardian? Yeah. um, I mean, yeah. Yes. So I moved back to Canada at a certain point after almost three years. I got a job at a a law firm a few blocks from here um, in downtown Montreal as a legal secretary. And while I was working there, I think I was working there then part-time, maybe not full-time, but my friend Kelly Nestruck, who's um, the theater critic for The Globe and Mail, longtime theater critic for The Globe, we were at McGill at the same time. He had moved to London when I was living in Scotland, and we were never that close, but we had a correspondence, and then he had heard that his colleagues were looking for someone in North America to cover this music news beat for not very much money. Um, and he had thought of me and asked if I was interested. And it was through him that I then applied for this job, and it was an amazing job. It sounds for me. like a big break. It was great, <laughs> but ironically, like it was great not because. It wasn't actually the big break you might think in terms of the publishing world. Mm-hmm. I was writing really dumb, low-quality, low-importance pieces for The Guardian. They wanted me to write between two and four articles every day covering new music news that was broken by other people. Mm-hmm. So they weren't, it wasn't one, it was basically an aggregation kind of gig. Mm-hmm. So Katy Perry would fall off a horse, the Rolling Rolling Stone would write about it, and then I would write the Guardian story citing the Rolling Stone reporting. But they paid me what was in Montreal a totally living wage, and I was working on it. Basically, I just had to do some work every afternoon, like between noon and midnight. I had to write some stories, file them, go to sleep, and then they would just edit them and publish them by the time I woke up. And so for years, it meant I could live here and work on my own things. It meant that I could travel. Like, it was just like a very perfect—and it was sort of mindless. It wasn't the same as if I had to do my own reporting or if I was writing music reviews or something. It would require a lot more thinking. This was really, like, really regurgitating and rewording other people's work. I mean, it's low—but, I mean, so many young people do that work now. But it's for The Guardian, so— Yeah, but then whenever I would pitch, like, a bigger piece to The Guardian, they were like, no, no, who are you again? Like, it was not—it was not really a big I pictured you drinking in the Eagle and everything. I wish, no. (laughs) Okay. No. But then, then I think it was a couple years later, you started writing Heartbeats for a weekly column for The Globe and Mail. I wrote a column for The Globe. I can't remember if it happened before or after— us conductors came out, but definitely over the course of this time, I started working and publishing more and more in Canada and a little bit in the States and a little bit in the UK, like um, burnishing a music journalism career. Just The Guardian was kind of immune to it. Um, (laughs) So I started to write for a lot of places about a lot of different things in those years. This kind of music journalism or Mm -hmm. this kind of writing, did did that instill a discipline in you? Or are you a disciplined writer? Yeah, I am disciplined, (laughs) he says, uh, humbly. It did. That kind of work was extremely important because I, like most precocious, like, young person writers, I think, you get really 
attached to revising your work and yeah. editing it until it's perfect. And I remember I would say, talk proudly of the fact that, oh, no, I'm more of a kind of person who really writes a paragraph and gets it perfect before I go on to the next paragraph. And so I don't need to do much revision at the end. And now I'm not that person at all, at all, at all. And it was really taught to me. The idea of for The Guardian... I was essentially, with those articles particularly, as quickly as possible, trying to write an article that was worthy of being published in one of the best newspapers in the world, but writing it, you know, writing another one, writing another one, email file, now I can go have an ice cream in La Fontaine Park. So I wrote, like, literally thousands of pieces for them, I believe, and it really taught me to let go of things and to accept when something was kind of good enough. Kind of sounds like good training, actually. Yeah, I mean, you take that and then you bring it into higher quality work. You know, the bar is different, but I still have to make that decision all the time. And even when you're loosing a novel into the world, you have to decide when is it in a place, when is it ready. Right. So you're doing this, you're getting paid for this, but you're writing fiction on the side. Yeah, yeah I'm freelancing, right. but like not for enough money that you could live on, no. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Then you write Us Conductors. So, yeah. So let's talk about the books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say, mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to go into it in depth here, but I wrote a book before Ask Conductors. Oh, okay. Um, so I wrote a novel. That's the novel I started writing in Scotland. And I wrote a whole book, my first book, spent, you know, four or five years on it, then spent another year or two querying agents with that book, getting finding an agent in New York who still represents me, and uh, and then her selling that book and not, in fact, not selling that book. So my first book, which took, you know, between five and ten years from start to finish, ne- never saw the light of day and, and will, has never and will never see the light of day. It was my starting book. So there's, oh this, there's this Shawn Michaels manuscript out there that a bunch of publishers saw years and years ago and everyone passed on. And it was like a devastating, oh, I bet. horrible that's a lot of time to spend on something that doesn't get published. Yeah, and it was on the one hand like one of the worst times of my life because this, you know, this dream I'd had for 25 years or something or just you know seemed like it literally died. But it was also a really illuminating experience because I really did realize even as this was happening, you know, was rejection after rejection came in and then my agent would say, okay, now let's try these publishers and then rejection after rejection. I did realize that, you know, I would wake up and, or I would do my guardian work or whatever. But really I'd wake up. I always tend to write in the morning at a cafe. I wake up and what do I want to do is I want to go to the cafe and write. And it brought order to my days, but also like happiness and fulfillment. And so it was very helpful to realize that the importance of writing to my life wasn't just, or writing fiction, wasn't just this mercenary career-based pursuit. It was really the thing that I was doing for itself. And that even if, even if, if someone said like, if you, would you still do this work if after all these years nobody ever read it? Yeah. It's like, yes, I, I would. You and really it, would. And that was this became this kind of wellspring for a certain, a different kind of confidence, not confidence in like how great I am, but confidence that I'm on the right track for my own, for the unspooling of a life. Looking back, can you understand why it wasn't published? Like what was the, was the material similar to what you would write later and just bad timing or any ideas? 
I haven't read it in a very, very long time, but I would suspect that the writing, like on the level of the sentence, was already interesting, like would still interest me now, that I think some of the ways that um, a metaphor can surprise you or the ways that a story can kind of reveal, you know, uh, the unexpected can can dart out of a, uh, a bush. Anyway, those kind of things that still tickle me and inspire me now, I think inspired me then. But I was young, and I think, first of all, just like writing novels is really hard, and the mechanics of plot and all this kind of thing, just writing a book that feels like it's mature and holds together is really important. And I don't know if I had that yet. I had to write another book or other books before I learned it, if I've learned it yet. Every book feels really hard. But also, I think I wasn't that mature. I, I don't think I was a preternaturally mature person. I wasn't an old soul quite in that way. And so I wonder if my book is, that book is quite kind of juvenile in some ways. Well, wasn't it Virginia Woolf who said you should never publish before the age of 30? <laughs> yes. Well, she, <laughs> you can see why. yeah, I can understand why. Yeah, that's right. Well, you did go on to write Us Conductors, mm -hmm. uh, which we call your debut novel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a story about the inventor of the theremin. Mm -hmm. You said that you first heard that obscure instrument in the car on the radio and thought it was the voice of a soprano. Why did that prompt you to write a novel? Or did it? Was it a combination of other things as well? Yeah, it was a combination. I mean, this is a podcast about writers, so I mean... The, someone was asking me about interviews yesterday. Are, are they asking, because I'm doing, started to do some interviews for my new book, and they were asking, it was my sister, she, she asked if they were, everyone was asking the same questions. And I said, well, there are certain questions that every interview I will ever do in my life, one is asked. And the question, a uh, question like that is, what inspired the book? Um, I mean, when I interview people, I ask the same question, because that's how we org order things in our heads. We want, what is the story of writing the book, you know? But for me, I really think that novels don't work. My novels do not work out. It's not a thing that comes from an inspiration, a spark. They're so big, they, you need so much material that you need to have like a whole heavy armload of things before you have enough to work on a book. And so you might have a really, uh, the metaphor I always use, the analogy I always use is like, I always think of being, uh, having a bindle. So like that stick with a handkerchief at the end that old timey hobos would carry <laughs> around. And it's like you wander through your life, you see something interesting on the ground, you take down your bindle, you open it up and put the seashell inside and then you tie it back up and keep walking and then you stop and you see a book and you put the book inside and you keep walking and then you stop and you see a, a photograph of a famous opera singer and then you put that inside and at a certain point your bindle's too heavy and your stick is bending and you open it up and you say okay what have we got mm -hmm. and how do these things fit together mm -hmm. which of them fit together and so Us Conductors was a book about um, about the revelation that the theremin this weird electric musical instrument that's like a joke could be astonishingly beautiful. It was about the like material truth of the things that happened in Lev, Ter uh, Lev Sergeyevich Theremin's life and his exciting story and the story of Clara Rockmore, the Theremin's greatest player. It was a story about 
self-delusion and versions of true love and untrue love, I wanted to write a book with a, I wanted to write a, a kind of a literary novel of a certain kind of, um, uh, with a certain kind of longing and melancholy in it that also had like a kung fu murder scene in the middle of the book. Um, you know, there are pieces like that that were really important to me. I wanted to write a book that had a kind of magic that may or may not be real magic. So all kinds of bits and pieces down to like particular images and scenes that were in the bindle as well. But was it hearing that song that, that made you realize you had all the pieces now? No. But, I, but hearing the song, I think, inspired me to find out more about Terman and then finding out more than I got excited because I could start to see how his life story intersected with all of these other interests I had and the way I could take the raw material of his life story and shape it into the book I, I, the book I wanted to write. And it's actually, well, to me, it felt like a romantic book. Are yeah, you, are yeah, you, absolutely. Are yeah. you a romantic? Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> he said shyly. <laughs> You're blushing. <laughs> All right. Another question is that it's uh, it's a fictional story based on a real person. Did you see any ethical issues with that? Were you at all concerned? Yeah. I mean, I saw the way I think about it, the way I came to think about it, is that if you're writing a story based on a real person, then you have to be p prepared to grapple with the consequences of that. And one can presume that the consequences, the more irresponsibly or deceivingly, deceptively you do it, the, the more you can presume the consequences might be severe. And even then, I think that's, <laughs> that there's a certain artistic license that one has, so long as one is then willing to face up to those consequences. So I, I feel that the biggest responsibility is to be able to stand behind your work and say, yes, this is a work I believe in. And I did it for these reasons, and I thought about not trying to harm anyone and so on. But then you also have to, like, stand up if, if you get called out for some piece of that. And I really don't believe in artists who kind of wave away, well, this is just, you know, a, a fantasy. This is, the work is no longer linked to the author. And as much as that's true in a certain kind of readerly way, I think in terms of the moral valences of a work, you have to always, um, you always are responsible for the work that you've brought out. Did you face any consequences, any negative consequences for doing it? Yeah, well, I got criticism. The theremin community is very extremely um, self-policing. It's full of a lot of little Napoleons who... I know there was a theremin community. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there were definitely people who were annoyed with me trying with me taking some of the oxygen from that space. There's people who felt that I besmirched or like, you know, the people who criticized the book for not being true to events, which it absolutely is not. And then I, I never had criticism, for instance, yeah, from anyone linked to Theremin himself, but I wrote, reached out to his, I guess it's his grandson, Peter Theremin, before I went to Russia to research because I wanted to meet him. And he was immediately on the defensive, like suspicious. And he, it was clear that he hated everything that had ever been written, all the nonfiction, you know, like didn't, felt that his grandfather's great name had been, um, you know, 
was not being treated with enough reverence. And I had no intention to treat his grandfather's name with such reverence because my reading had made it clear to me that, I mean, I was writing a fictional Terman, but I, I definitely also had the impression that the real one didn't seem like an angel by any means. So I didn't, I didn't feel that anyone would have the responsibility to like depict them as an angel. That seemed foolish. Did you hear from Peter later? No, I, I'm trying to remember if I, I don't think I ever did, but I did a reading with, I've done readings with tons of thereminists now. And so I know that most theremin musicians, I think, appreciate, not necessarily the historians, but the musicians appreciate the way that I tried to express the beauty of this instrument to which they've devoted parts of their lives. And I did a reading with Lydia Cavanaugh, for instance, who is, I think she lied about how closely she was linked ge genealogically to theremin, but she's a Russian thereminist. And that was that went fine. So that's as close as I got. But I was once like yelled at by the guy who did the documentary about theremin came to my LA book launch and was really unhappy with me really? for, I mean, for lying. And to which I just, that accusation, I roll my eyes because if you don't understand what a, how a novel works. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you just said what I thought. I mean, <laughs> I didn't know if I had dreamt it or if I had read it mm -hmm. that you actually did go to Russia to do, oh, yeah. like, to, to, uh, yeah. to see a gulag. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, that seems pretty extreme in terms of research. Yeah, well, I mean, it <laughs> reminds me. But, so I was working on Us Conductors, and I really, I'd never been to Russia. I'd been to the Baltic states and some other former Soviet countries, but uh, I really wanted to go to just really to get the vibe mm -hmm. like that I wanted to I always say like if I had question if I had questions like you would archives and find the answers but I wanted to know what I didn't know I didn't know yes. you know the color of the sky above St. Petersburg this kind of thing so I applied for some grants and all I'll say is the grant the grants at that time were not very generous for pure research purposes so I was a bit tricksy with some of those grant applications, and for for no reason, I wish to hear uh, send a shout out to your to one of your other guests, Mikhail Yossel, who helped me in some way with that. But uh, all this to say, I got some help, and I also wrote a couple of travel stories for Reader's Digest and for The Guardian to help pay for a trip to Moscow, St. Petersburg, and then to Magadan on the Pacific coast where I went and visited a former gulag. And that gave you the, the vibe, the feeling? It did, that, it did. Did, like you the, write, yeah. did you write while you were there? I took lots of notes, I think. I mean, I know I took lots of notes. I don't know if I worked on the pages, but then when I got back, it was... I already had a draft of the book at that point, so, or maybe a few drafts. So it was this process of revising it to like imbue it with that experience. Mm-hmm. I could Us, talk to you for hours about Yeah, No, it's but, yeah. so fascinating. Us Conductors went on to win the Scotiabank Giller Prize in 2014, a huge boost to sales and mm -hmm. recognition and, and maybe validation for a debut author. Did you think you had a winner on your hands? No, absolutely not. And no, no, absolutely not. I remember... They sent us... They sent... If the finalists, they send them on a little tour across the country and... Over the course of that couple of weeks, you know, you're reading for lots of people and more people, you're meeting more people who have read your book, more strangers, and they're saying like, great job, I loved your book. And I remember thinking, you know, having a 
thinking for a moment over those weeks, like, well, maybe, you know what, maybe, I mean, who knows, maybe I could win it. And then the, a few days before the Giller ceremony, the Globe and Mail published this feature in which they'd asked 20 or 30 publishing industry, like, insiders oh, to no. predict who would <laughs> oh, win. <no. laughs> and zero of the 20 or 30 predicted that I would win. And so it was actually a very helpful, like, so by the time, you know, Monday, that Monday night rolled around, Your I was not. Your expectations had been managed. Yeah, no, I yeah. was not. I was no longer. <laughs> I was no well, longer. Well, I mean, you had some pretty stiff competition. Oh, right? they were fantastic books. You had Miriam Taves, yeah. you had David. Okay, so you had... But you did. You won. Oh, I can also let me. The one little anecdote there is I remember being backstage in, uh, I want to say, Vancouver or Halifax. And one of the other nominees said, proposed that we all make a pact to split the prize money. <gasps> like whoever would win would share it. We'd, we'd share it. Isn't that interesting? Because it's like, who knows? It's random. And I, for sure, was like, absolutely, I will do that. And, but a couple, of the, a couple of the other people were like, nah. <laughs> well, lucky for you. <laughs> Very, yeah, lucky for me. So, in fact, you did call it luck afterwards. Which <laughs> yes. Is, <laughs> but don't you deserve a bit more credit than that? I don't think so in that I really think that I mean, even the year of the—that's what my second book really became about, in a, in large part. Even the year that *Us Conductors* won the Giller, it wasn't nominated for any other important prizes outside of Quebec. And like, why? And the reason is that taste is taste is taste. And I think that writing a good thing can get you into a conversation. But I always compare it. You know, my partner at home my best friends in life, like how many of my favorite books are books that they love? How many of my favorite movies mm. is, are movies that my, the people who are dearest to me, whose taste I appreciate right. most in the world also, like we definitely don't have the same top five yeah. list, you know? Yeah. And so with all these, with prizes, certainly it's really the same thing. And it feels very much, I would just got very lucky with a particular jury at a particular moment who read my book in a particular way and and fell fell for it and changed my life. So your next book, The Wagers, came out in 2019, and it was about luck, physical mm -hmm. bags of luck, which That's I right. found so amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Having won the Giller, uh, did that, and so early in your career, did that was that a curse? Did it make it harder or easier to write the next one? I think my wife would say harder. The next one was hard to write, but I can never get away from the way that uh, winning that prize just made my life easier and just gives you, I mean, it just gave me so much money. It gave me, I mean, it didn't give me that much money in the broad scheme of things at all, but the amount of money it gave and the amount of stability, I think I went on tour for essentially a year being invited to festivals and, and to schools and... And then when I wanted to pitch things within Canada, at least, Everyone I was now, uh, yeah. yeah, it just changed everything. And uh, being a, uh, I don't, I don't come from, I come from a middle class background. I <laughs> had to pay all my own bills. And so, you know, winning at the end, I won the Giller Prize and then I continued to write for The Guardian. Every day I would file those stories for about six months and then I quit. And I haven't had a job since. And um, that's purely because of that. I mean, I saw what life with, with life, 
Us Conductors came out in March or May or something, and I saw what that summer, like, this is life as a novelist, and wow. it was one thing, and then I saw what life as a novelist was like after the Giller. So it made makes everything is easier when you know where the where your food's coming from and yeah, and so yeah. on. Yeah, less stressful and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the wagers takes place in Montreal, but also. Uh, Taipei and Marrakesh. Mm-hmm. Did you did you go on research in these other? I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, did you also hang out at racetracks? And is the Knock Knock Club based on a real club? Ah, the Knock Knock Club comedy. I st- when I was at McGill, I did. I was involved with the McGill Improv Club. So I did a bunch of comedy improv for years, including at I mean at all kinds of clubs including all of the major Montreal clubs I've performed there. Right, because Theo, the main character, is a comedian. Yes, he's a comedian. stand-up comedian. And so I've spent a lot of time in these in places with cringy names and honestly at cringy <laughs> like <that> atmosphere. <laughs> uh, and so that was inspired by some of those times. Though I did, for, I did do research for the wagers. I went to see a bunch of bad stand-up. Uh, I, was always, I was always going to bad... I would invite friends. I'd say, you want to go to see some stand-up? And they're like, oh, who's, who's doing it? I'm like, nobody you've heard of, because the point is I want to see people struggling. The American streaming company, Hulu, bought the rights to the wagers in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see an adaption working well, especially with like the magical realism elements. Yeah, so can I you think... tell us about it? Well, th- that production, especially now with the writer's strike, I don't think that's happening. Mm. So, would yeah. you have worked as a consultant on it? I, yeah, I, I would. Yes, I think I will if, so that's yeah, sort if of it comes hold, back. Yeah, exactly. Are you hoping to meet uh, the producer? What's Helen, Helen Estherbrook? Oh, Helen. I'd love to meet her one day. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I imagine that Whiplash was a Yeah, that was movie. a great movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, around this time, or maybe it was a little bit before, you were also working on a project with the Banff Center called the Sears Catalog. It was yeah. interactive uh, online adventure story where clicking on one thing leads to another. And I wondered, did that have anything to do with your interest in technology or how art works in a digital environment or what uh, drew you to it? I think the Sears catalog, my, I have a strong emotional response. The Sears catalog w- was made in conjunction with the Banff Center Press. They paid to bring me and some other very creative people the Montreal visual artist Pat McCowan, a great coder called Six, and an illustrator from Toronto called James Braithwaite. And we worked there for a couple of weeks. We did lots and lots of work, and we created something I'm really proud of. And then within two years, the Banff Center went through kind of overhauls and layoffs, and the thing disappeared from the internet and has never... And they lost their backup copy. And I have a back, you know, I emailed at some point saying, where, what's happening? And they're like, who are you and what are you talking about? And so I have a backup somewhere, but that I can't, I need help to put back. So it becomes like, to me, it was also an object lesson in the obsolescence and risks and frustrations of internet-based art. It's really, I really like the idea that my novels have been printed and yeah. they, it's hard <laughs> to get copy. rid of them. <laughs> like you'll have to work very hard to remove all copies of us conductors from the world. But I, I mean, I'm a very online person. I, like I said, I, the internet really made a mark on me starting in my teens with things like music and other communities. And so it's always been interesting to me when fiction can intersect with technology and the internet in 
truly excellent ways. There's so many ways it happens badly. Mm-hmm. But interactive fiction is the name of a genre of this kind of text-based sort of slightly choose-your-own-adventure stories. There's a wonderful writer called Porpentine, whose work, among others, around that time in the late 20-teens, I found really, it was really incredible stuff that you, could know, you couldn't print in a book. It doesn't work that way. And so I was inspired by stuff like that to try to do our own sort of weird version. I tried to do motto, but I yes. guess my phone doesn't support it because my phone is too old or something. Oh, really? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> no, motto's cool too. Yeah, that was another project with the National Film Board and my friends Vincent Morissette and Caroline Robert. Um, and that's a really wonderful, that's like a little novella, um, mm-hmm. a, bit of a treasure hunt, scavenger hunt, novella, activity, class. It's a really unique ghost story that I worked on with them and that you can go and Try, you should be able. Most modern phones should be able to make it it's work. It's not that old. No, well, believe, I have a flip phone, so I can't. I can't do it on my phone either. You have a flip phone, and you're yeah. and you're into digital. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, in your new book, do you remember being born? You delve right into the world of AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, a 75-year-old poet named Marion Farmer is recruited by a Silicon Valley company to collaborate with AI in the writing of a poem. What are you trying to do with this book? To highlight or to respond to? I mean, I wanted to, it's above all a book about people, about this character, Marion, and the relationships she has had over the course of her life with other artists, with her mother, with her son, with her partner, um, the relationships she's severed in pursuit of a certain kind of solitary, uh, certain ideal of solitary artistic genius. And I wanted to challenge that, and I wanted to question it and I wanted to call for different levels and different ways of thinking about the care that we should show to one another and what integrity means in art and how collaboration works and and all those things and I think that that all that stuff is can enter into um, it falls interestingly in relation to artificial intelligence. Uh, you wrote the book before the frenzy with chat GPT was happening, I mm-hmm. believe, right? Mm-hmm. How long has AI been of interest to you? Um, so working on Motto, which was around 2018-ish, I think, um, I was working at my friend's studio up in Petit Patrie, and we were using some AI, trying to experiment with AI vision. So we had things where you would upload a photograph and an AI would try to identify the objects in an image and so on. And that stuff was, we didn't use that much of it in the end, but it was really cool. It was weird because of the mistakes it would make Mm -hmm. or the assumptions it would make or the funny reads it would have on things. And then while I was working on Motto, I stumbled across a website called Talk to Transformer, very weird name, and it was a, an engineer in Toronto who had received access to what's called GPT-2. So G, chat GPT uses uh, GPT-3.5 or GPT-4. And so earlier generation of GPT of that was, was GPT-3, and then one generation before that was GPT-2. Mm-hmm. So in 2019, you could go to this site and type in some sentences and hit submit, and it would you know, continue what you were writing for a sentence or two. And it was crazy. Uh, I mean, by now, a lot of people have played with JetGPT and seen how kind of wondrous and banal, but like 
kind of astonishing that tech can be. But I was, in 2019, I was just, I was really disquieted by what it was doing. It was a little bit more incoherent than what we have now. It was a little bit Like, for example, what would it do? Well, I mean, I really, so um, (laughs) I think people now know that the, the way these large language models work is all they're trained to do is to predict the next word in a sense, in to continue your phrase and add a, a word. However, unfortunately, unfortunately for the technologists, I guess, um, most people have only used ChatGPT. And ChatGPT takes that technology of predict the next word, and then they've wrapped it in a whole bunch of other mm, training to make that bot try to act as much like a boring, bland, uh, friendly chat correspondent as possible. And so the root technology at the bottom really doesn't have any of that personality, doesn't have any of that vibe. It really just continues what you've written, unlike ChatGPT. So ChatGPT isn't very good at kind of dealing with aesthetic style or copying tone or mimicking those things. But the technology it's built on is good at that. By now, a lot of people have seen images, crazy AI-generated images, where it like distills the visual like iconography of Wes Anderson or Quentin Tarantino, but can do it for a different story. And it's like crazy. It's crazy. Well, the large language models can do that to some extent with prose style. And they could even in 2019. So I would write a few sentences of something and I would say, keep going. And it would kind of like, I imagine, you know, imagine you're walking down the street and someone beside you is able to just copy your gait and is walking in the same kind of way. And it's creepy and weird, but also, I mean, the thing with these things is you can click, uh, try again, try again, try again, try again, try again. And you can generate, in a minute, you can generate like 10 different versions of the end of a sentence. And so if I plugged in a paragraph and asked it to continue in the same style as that paragraph was written, one out of 50, one out of 10, or one out of 50, or one out of 100 of those generations might be really interesting, might be delightful in the way that a good book can be. But you have to discard the others. You have to discard. It yeah. requires human discernment. It requires right. all this stuff. But I'd never before seen technology like this that was so close to being able to, to delight in the same way that good writers can. And that made me very weirded out. <laughs> and I would tell people, and they didn't—they um, weren't as weirded out as me because they would only see the way it fail, ways it failed. Mm. Not, I don't think they were noticing quite the ways it succeeded. So, like, there was one really creepy. I remember I would often write things about, like, let me tell you about something that happened to me last week, or I had a dream last night, and in the dream, and then it would continue. But I would give it a bit more stuff to kind of let it have a sense of my style but it would it spat back this like very lynchian crazy creepy almost cronenbergian horror thing and in kind of broken english and it didn't quite make sense but it talked about like there was a doctor this doctor came up to me and he had this tool he called a teeth and like <laughs> a teeth is like bad grammar but to me i was like Ah, teeth. That is cre- like that is weird, and be- like brilliant in a way. Like if I had read uh, a good horror 
literary horror novel that had such a thing. It would give me, you know, I'd really have the shivers. And here it was coming from the machine. And so I found that really interesting rather than just seeing the ways that, well, it doesn't, can't even do the grammar of a teeth, you know. Right. Right. That's a small thing in the end. Yeah. Right? yeah. But you had a, a predictive model in the wagers also. It was being used by uh, the association for right. betting. That's right. Was it in any way a precursor to this? No. I mean, that's a coincidence, but I'm, I think it's because, I mean, I hadn't thought of that very much. But I'm really interested in that intersection of, like, machine, like, the way, the weird intersection of math and, like, I- intuition or, like, the ways that that can work with or against each other. Something you can explain and something you cannot explain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. The book is called Do You Remember Being Born? What's the significance of that title? So it wasn't called Do You I Remember Being Born <laughs> for most of its life. Um, it had a very different title. It, um, it was called Pastelogram. Oh. And Pastelogram um, comes from the other major inspiration for the book besides AI, which is the life and times of the poet Marianne Moore. Mm-hmm. And so Marianne Moore, great 20th century poet, uh, who wore a cap and a tricorn, I uh, mean, a tricorn cap and a cape, and threw the first pitch at baseball games and went on The Tonight Show and wrote liner notes for Cassius Clay. And Highly also wrote, unusual for a poet. <laughs> yeah, yeah <Yes>. exactly. <laughs> she had this, like, while also writing, you know, profound and uh, very influential, free, you know, modernist poetry. And she only became famous late in life and lived her whole life in the same one-bedroom apartment, sleeping in the same bed as her own mother. Had this strange life that became a kind of a deep and direct inspiration for the protagonist in my book, Marion Farmer. But also this episode of something that happened to Marion Farmer in 1955 when she was famous, successful, worldly, respected, and she got a letter from Ford, the car company, asking if um, she would help them name their new car. And rather than, like, spurn their advances, saying, I'm too good for this, I'm a poet, she was delighted, <laughs> and as I would be. She was like, ooh, this sounds fun. And she Bring spent, it on. <laughs> she spent months coming up with crazy names for their car, mm-hmm. things like Utopian Turtle Top and the Ford Resilient Bullet and the Mongoose Civic and the Ford Pastelogram. Okay. And, um, and they rejected them all and... Mm-hmm eventually called it the Fort Edsel. And never never hired another poet, probably. Never, probably. <laughs> well, as far as we know, yeah. Um, but I really was interested in the way that a poet, in all, her, in all her dignity, at the height of her powers, would be, could be lured, or like allow herself to be lured into a dance with a corporation in that way. That there's certain kinds of, yeah, Certain kinds of deals that no one is really well at the at the time a commercial venture was really looked down on for artists. Yeah, I mean it was now. I mean now we live in the no one can sell out anymore. There's no such thing essentially. But But yeah, there there there, I would I would say that yeah. But that aspect is is something that interested you about her. Yes, and so I I found that moment, and and also like the capacity that for her to do interesting work within those constraints? Or is it? Or is it completely undermined by the fact that it's for Ford? I don't know. Um, is there any record of how she responded to their 
to their refusal. No, I think with disappointment, there I have a copy of all her letters about it, and I don't think I remember a letter after they basically said nope. They sent her some flowers at the end, though, so nice. she liked flowers. Um, this is the first time you've written from a female point of view. That's right. Uh, what, did you do anything in particular to get into the, the headspace of a woman? <laughs> no. No, I just... No. I mean, no. I, li I live among women. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> They're not aliens. Um, but it was something I had been afraid to do. And that was a reason to do it. Because why? Just because it wasn't you, don't, you? It's like, well, yeah, well, will, will you just, will, is it, can you, we have these ideas about this stuff. And it's certainly true that all of us struggle to portray anyone, like we can portray anyone who's not ourselves with more or less success. Um, so it's harder than just writing a book about a 41-year-old man, you know. But that didn't seem like a reason not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you told her backstory in the second person. Why did you do that? Yeah, there's a series of flashback kind of chapters um, throughout the book um, that are told in the second person. And I wanted those chapters called for a different point of view in terms of I wanted them to be a break from the main narrative, and that they worked better once I realized that they should be in a different, from a different perspective. But I also, so this is a book about Marion's conversations and relationship with an AI called Charlotte and the week they spent together. And Charlotte kind of has been trained on Marion's work and knows it deeply. And by knowing it deeply, maybe knows Marion deeply. And I also felt like it was interesting to leave the book open to a possibility that Marion, those flashback chapters aren't Marion's memories, but are Charlotte's imagining of Marion's life. Hmm. And uh, it's kind of an unresolved, it's what is it? It's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat thing for me. Whereas I feel, I think I know which it is, but one of the reasons to use the second person was to add a kind of alienness and weirdness that opened the door to some of that. It felt uh, almost more objective to me. Yeah, and the tone is slightly different. Like, it's not just the second person. It's written slightly differently. There's something, yeah, there's something floating and a bit odd, and and I think I hope that is generative. Like, I hope it uh, that choice adds more to it. Mm -hmm. um, rather than just confusing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I found it mm -hmm. interesting, a new, a new way of looking at something. Mm -hmm. You yourself have co-designed some poetry generation, generating software, is that correct? Moorbot? Or so the, in this book, there is lots of these chat conversations between Marion and Charlotte. All of the poetry that Charlotte writes in the book was generated by AI. And then also many bits of the prose, the main narrative, was also generated by AI. And it's all kind of formatted to show that and to kind of make the readers start to ask themselves some questions about this. I Basically, I had the idea early on that 
my book, just as Marion is entering into a collaboration with an AI, my book could also be infiltrated by AI and kind of contaminated by it because the technology is almost there. Mm. And so from the start, I was working with some of these tools that I first discovered in 2019 to add, um, to, to, to write some of the phrases and sentences in the book. But GPT is awful at poetry for reasons that are kind of complicated and technical. It really can only generate um, rhyming verse. So it ju- you say, like, please write a poem in the free ver- unrhyming free verse style of E.E. E. Cummings. And it'll be like, sure, there once was a woman from, you know, like, uh, it just can't kind of figure it out a lot of the time. Yeah. So I had to. So I got a grant from the Canada Council to hire an engineer called Katie O'Neill. And I worked with her to do some custom fine-tuning of a large language model to create a piece of software that could generate poem, poetry in a consistent voice of my creation, inspired by the complete works of Marianne Moore, a couple of anthologies of contemporary Canadian poetry, and some other magic uh, secret ingredients. So you basically created Charlotte. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a very, like, uh, when I boot her up, like, the poetry she spits back is crazy and chaotic. <laughs> and I use, you know, little bits of it and edit them and, and so on. But it's got that little seed of, of the kind of, yeah, of what I find exciting in this mm-hmm. tech. So you're you're quite interested in technology, but most people are a little bit worried about AI. In as much as you are, is it more as an artist or a parent? As much as I am worried? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm totally worried as well. Um, but the things that I'm most worried about, honestly, the things I'm most worried about have almost nothing to do with technology and have everything to do with like our economic system. You know, the reason that it is terrifying that what if AI steals the jobs of people who write terrible dollar store coloring books, you know, or, or copywriters or stock photography people? It's like part of it is because any craft, any of these, this work has a certain value. But, you know, it's a, it was a greater sadness to me when we stopped having hand-painted signs. Like, it's a big loss that we have so few hand-painted signs now. It's not such a big loss that many homes have dishwashers, you know? So there's different scales of losses to do with the value of the original work. But setting that part aside, it's really like, are people going to be okay? Are writers going to be, are any of us going to be okay if, quote-unquote, the machines take our jobs? And that's a question for government and for our society's priorities. And in my view, it's not a question for programmers. And there's a lot that's wrong with our society. Even if AI didn't exist, these problems exist, you know? So there's that piece. I'm not really, I'm not myself worried about the, like, computers wake up and go rogue and and, uh, take over the world. Maybe I should be more. I I kind of follow it a little bit. I recognize there's a chance of that (laughs) possibility. Um, But with this book, I wasn't particularly trying to sing the praises of this. And in fact, the very closing line of the book in my view, is signals some of that. But I feel like the evil scenario has been much described and the dangers of the, and the risks and the costs of the benign scenario have been inadequately considered. And I wanted to write a book that asks questions and raises questions 
while acknowledging the possibility of a fairly benign version and, and what is the cost yet still of that benign version of AI in our lives? It, can, it, can it really be benign? I don't know. Right. Okay, Sean Michaels, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Sean Michaels. Find Do You Remember Being Born and Sean's other novels at Still Booksellers in Montreal and other fine bookstores everywhere. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to follow us on your podcast app and to sign up for our newsletter on the website howiwrotethisthepodcast.com. Next week, I'll be talking to Iranian-Canadian actress and author Baharan Bani Amadi. <laughs>